Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. And welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast. It's the podcast that explores the new areas of agriculture and medicine with a focus on biotechnology, especially as it applies in those areas. And we're finding solutions that help people and help the planet. I'm Kevin Folda, and today we have as a guest Helena Bottomiller-Evich. She's the Senior Food and Agriculture Reporter for Politico. Hi, Helena. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. I mean, this is this your article um, on March 8th was really welcome. Every I don't know how much you know about me, but I'm the, the chairman and a professor of the number nine uh, department in the world in fruits and vegetables. We're, you know, we're a big shot and we're all about specialty crops, yet I never knew anything that was in your article. <laughs> so um, That makes me so happy. I mean, it makes me happy that, that you enjoyed the article, that you found it interesting. Uh, and I found I've actually had a very similar response from many people. For whatever reason, this idea of the research gap just has not been explored. I couldn't find any other articles about it. So it was, I guess, extra interesting for both of us to be able to research it and also get to share that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was really cool because I I never realized that such a thing existed. And I was really and, and I know we're we we're we're starting without really giving all the backstory. You know, it's a conversation between you and me. We're leaving the audience out a bit, but um it was one of these things that I always felt that funding for fruits and vegetables was just fine and that you know, we got what we got and that's wonderful. And so let let's go backwards then. What are specialty crops? So specialty crops, uh, I guess, have their name because they're special. They are, we only dedicate about 3% of cropland to specialty crops, and that includes this category of fruit and vegetables and nuts, dried fruit. That category also includes, like, uh, nursery flowers, nursery trees, uh there's, you know, it's kind of a catch-all for, like, everything but the big, you know, right. traditional commodities that you think of. 
corn, soy, wheat, uh, etc. So it's kind of this little catch-all basket that um, really is a, a small minority of um, cropland represented, but actually, interestingly, represents about 25% of the agricultural value because these crops, not always, but tend to be worth more uh, you know, per pound or per acre than than the other, um, I call them big league commodities. Yeah, so these are, these are in a way, perhaps what we would refer to as horticultural crops versus agronomic crops, because agronomic crops being things like, you know, sugarcane and corn and soybeans and cotton, that these might be better qualified as kind of the fruits and vegetables and the things that have extremely high value but limited cultivation, at least here in the States, kind of confined to specific areas. Is that? Do you think that that really fits as a definition? Yeah, and now I'm like, well, that's what I should have used as the definition. <laughs> Although I don't know if my editors would have let me use agronomic or horticultural in this piece because we're trying to make it, you know, very, uh, you know, we try to cut down on jargon as much as possible. But I think that that you have nailed it. That is probably uh, the, the the definition right there. Yeah, it's kind of it's tough for me as as a chairman of a horticultural sciences department. Um, that we're using this term, which has a lot of meaning for some people, yet is not the most clear term for, say, students who are looking for a major. Um, Here we Mm -hmm. are working with fruits and vegetables, which are the fun crops to work with and the fun ones in nutrition. And uh, yet, you know, so I'm always very interested in in the, you know, what what is a specialty crop and how do we define it? Why are they important? Well, it's interesting because the piece basically looks at this, underlying question of why is there a gap between what the USDA like recommends that we eat, which is, I think, as we all know now, they recommend we fill half our plate with fruits and vegetables uh, as, as kind of, that's kind of the simple message now of the dietary guidelines and my plate, which of course replaced the food pyramid um, during, you know, the last administration so, so they tell us to fill half our, our plate with fruits and vegetables, which is a pretty simple message, which almost no one follows. I think one in ten Americans actually eats the recommended uh, servings of fruits and vegetables. So they tell us that, uh, but then there's this gap between how much we, of the research, uh, federal research budget, we invest in specialty crops. And what was interesting when I was researching this is almost no one had ever measured how much we spend, we invest in specialty crop research compared to uh, these other more, I guess, mainstream uh, commodities. And I think that in and of itself kind of tells you something. I can only find one estimate that existed. And I, you know, track down all the economists who work on ag research and ask them a million questions like, no, really, who's done this? You know, who's calculated it? And I can only find one paper from about 10 years ago. uh, And it had estimated that uh, specialty crops had received about 15% of the federal research budget over much of the last three decades. Um, So that's really the best number I could find. I can't even find anything from the last decade. So that kind of tells you that it just wasn't um, really something that was being examined. Um, But it's interesting. So they tell us to fill half a plate of fruits and vegetables, uh, and yet over time we have an idea that about 15% of the federal research budget had been invested in specialty crops. So clearly there's, there's 
somewhat of a gap there. And so the story kind of looks at why that is and, and what the implications of that may be. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty interesting from my point of view because we're always looking for specialty crops dollars. And there are a number of, of uh, opportunities at the USDA for specialty crops, what they call block grants, where you get large sums of dollars that go into a given uh, problem within a given crop. So you may be looking at mechanical harvesting in blueberries or improved tomato varieties or, you know, who knows, but really big questions. And smaller amounts come through the states because different states have different reliance on specialty crops. And, um, and so that's really kind of the only way that that really flows. But when, what did you say the amount was in terms of cropland? 3%. So, so there, that's an interesting point to make. So if you, if you ask about cropland, specialty crops actually get an outsized investment compared to the amount of cropland that they're dedicated. So if they're 3% of cropland, but they've roughly been getting 15% of the research budget, people, you could say, oh, that's really good. But economists could also argue that that's actually underrepresented because they make, they've made up a quarter of the value and they're supposed to be half the plate. So it's, it's, I think whichever way you shake it, there is, there is a gap there. But, um, you, so you brought up the specialty crop block grant program, and, and that's a really interesting um, pot of money that a lot of people brought up to me when I was researching this. Um, I didn't realize that that program didn't exist, I don't think, before 2008. I think that I mean, the 2008 Farm Bill was really where um, I had people tell me basically specialty crops, like, you know, that was their farm bill. Like, they got a seat at the table. That was the first time there was a... Uh, a title uh, that was mostly dedicated to uh, different specialty crop programs and really created, it created, I believe, that block grant program and also the specialty crop research initiative. And these types of, you know, initiatives, as you know, kind of organize um, attention and funding streams and sort of organization around solving some of these problems. So it's kind of interesting. You know, it's only, we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, I guess, catching up, right? So if, if those programs were launched in 2008, that wasn't really that long ago. No, it wasn't. And, and actually, I got those backwards. I said specialty crop block grants, those go to the states. Like, they're USDA dollars that go to the states where state agencies can focus on specific state needs. And it's still a competitive grants process and horribly mm-hmm. competitive. Um, and then the other yeah. one, as you yeah. mentioned, the uh, Specialty Crops Research Initiatives, the SCRIs, those are these really big multi-institutional um, federal grants. Yeah. And uh, those, you know, and those we can, you know, discuss, you know, the, the, how well those can work too. But I think the most important thing, though, is that when, and it really comes through in your article, and one of the paragraphs that you put um, it really touches on this, and it. You know, I'll read a little bit from it, even though I hate to do that. But it says, The enormous logistical and techn- technological challenges facing so many of the foods that nutritionists tell us to eat, um, the sector is relatively inefficient. Apples bruise. Berries don't ripen all at once. Cilantro wilts. Cherries can split and crack if it rains at the wrong time. So much strawberries and other things. A problem that is so expensive that some growers hire helicopters to fly over the crop and dry the fruit. And um, you touch on the issues of labor. You touch on the issues of water. You 
touch, um, even though you don't touch on it, we have issues with changing regulations with um, uh, which uh, pesticides, fungicides you can use. And so all these things together really bring tremendous challenge to the specialty crop industries. And it really exacerbates that gap. And what were some of the things that, uh, were there other things that you learned about um, the challenges of growing specialty crops? Yeah, it, 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 there are almost so many challenges that it's, it's overwhelming. And, and then, you know, you could look at the set of challenges just for one uh, crop. And then you'd remember that, oh my gosh, there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of other types of crops to look at. And so I think that's like what makes, in a, in a nutshell, that is what makes specialty crops so hard. Like each one has its own pests, its own you know diseases, its own uh, labor challenges, and you know they're there might not be that many acres of it to begin with. So looking at research investments, even in the private sector, it's hard to make the argument for uh, spending all this money and time, you know, to innovate around these problems when it's just a drop in the bucket in the scheme of things. So, uh, you know, I, I, I came across a lot of examples, a lot of um, different uh, trade associations, you know, trying to like, ramp up some investment or help because each of them face um, so many challenges. But I think the cherries splitting and cracking in the rain is like the most uh, visible, you know, like it's just a good visual of how, you know, frustrating and high stakes something like that can be. Obviously, you know, growers can't control when it rains. Um, and the, the idea that just a rain at the wrong time could ruin your entire fresh crop um, I think kind of alarms people or kind of gets to them like, oh my gosh, that must be so frustrating. And the idea that you would hire helicopters to then, you know, basically <laughs> hover over your trees to help dry them to preserve the crop. Uh, when I tell people that, they're just like, no, really? You know, and then of course they Google it. If you Google it, you should, and everyone should. There's great little videos that show the, the helicopters doing this. Um, but that's just one example. You know, I should find out how many acres of cherries we're growing, but I'm sure it's just not very many compared to, you know, everything else. I mean, why are cherries, I mean, sometimes they're like $7, $8 a pound. When, you know, so, of course, it's not, you know, mass produced in the, in the way that some other commodities are. But, um, yeah, there's just so many. I, I think the overarching thing I heard from, from growers right now is um, uncertainty around labor. So, you know, they, I think they they very much get frustrated by a lot of these technological challenges and they want more research to help solve them, whether it's, you know, apples not bruising as much or berries ripening more evenly or, you know, whatnot. But the overarching challenge I heard right now is labor and uncertainty around labor. And that seems to be really driving, trying to, like, hit the gas on mechanization, which is something that think a lot of people have been focused on for a while, but it's sort of uh, the current uh, tightening down on undocumented workers, although it really started under the last administration, I think has only accelerated the, the pace at which growers in many different uh, industries really would like to see mechanization uh, improved. Yeah, we need uh, undocumented robots, you know, the 
Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, it's yeah. something that that scares me very much because you see even in places like where I am, there will be crops left in the field because they can't afford to pick them, and yeah. uh, and, and it costs. Uh, like last year, I was speaking with one of our big tomato growers, who said this year the tomato crop, the value I can get for the tomatoes is less than the cost of the box that I will put them in. And so it, there's there the markets are really difficult right now with the low cost, low prices. And it really, really hurts the specialty crop growers who now have to figure out another way to, to somehow get through that season. You know? And, uh, and you, the other one that I'd love to share with you is um, the uh, f- freezing that, that we had a few weeks ago, that we had this one weird cold snap and uh, like the helicopters over the trees, we have to spray overhead irrigation on things like peaches and cover them in icicles. It looks amazing, but it's the only way to try to freeze protect the young flowers and young fruits. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see that sometime. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're, we're just so blessed in this country to have a very abundant food supply so we don't have to, like, think about things like... You know, will there be peaches, you know, at the store or, you know, is there going to be enough lettuce or or whatever? But um, people, I think, don't appreciate how much goes into uh, getting those items to the to the produce aisle. And the produce aisle, I think, in general, just requires more effort, (laughs) uh, if you will, Mm -hmm. than than some of these other other crops. The funny part is I think you just nailed what a specialty crop is. I think specialty crops are the produce aisle crops. And that when we think about the agronomic stuff, it's more of the ingredients in the rest of the store. So mm-hmm. your corn... The middle of the store. Right. Your corn starches, your oils, your uh, soy solids, all of that stuff kind of goes in all of the other products that are in the middle. And the produce aisle maybe is the... Uh, place where the specialty crops live so maybe that's another way to think about it <laughs> what are some of plus the, the almonds yeah plus the almonds yeah <laughs> yeah plus almonds of course yes yeah. yeah almonds and most people don't Perfect. realize yeah go ahead and talk about almonds for a second well i was just gonna say that you know don't forget the almonds almonds are having a boom and you know everyone's i guess now that california has some water people are less concerned about losing the uh almond uh almond groves but um I think I think almonds are are having a moment. They are they're popular. Everyone's drinking almond milk, much to the you know dismay of of, of dairy farmers. And uh, but yes, all the nuts and dried fruits are also in specialty crops. And I only bring that up because it is just this very weird catch-all category that probably should be rebranded to to be to be honest. So. Yeah, the, I think so too. Our guest last week I talked about that too. This is almond juice, not almond milk, and she well, she's a dairy dairy woman, you know. And yes, and of course, of course, milk has yeah. some very specific meaning to them, and and I kind of agree, um, in lots of ways. But um, the what kind of uh, funding? What kind of problems does specialty crop funding go to solve? Yeah, I mean it. It is just across the board. Um, in looking through the different things that uh, USDA has been funding, I mean, it's it, it's everything from, you know, uh, citrus greening, uh, which I know you all in Florida are just 
very familiar with the, the devastation that that has caused. Um, oh, there's sure. actually a ton of money, a ton of money that's been dedicated to citrus screening research. Everything from that to, you know, apple picking robots. Uh, that was one of my favorite examples. They're um, Washington State University, great ag school. I'm from Washington State, which is just objectively the best state in the union. Okay. Uh, and uh, so they they are um, working with a couple other universities, including, I believe, Carnegie Mellon and some other engineering schools to come up with uh, some advanced robotics that includes things like robots being able to smell or even see when fruit is ripe, um, which I think is fascinating. And they're really uh, working with uh, the tree fruit industry in Washington State to try to, you know, move that along. Uh, in a, I think it's in Michigan. They're also along the tree fruit line. They're working on this in the field. They're using in, infrared sorting uh, technology, trying to move that in the field to reduce some of the labor uh, required for sorting fruit. Um, there's you know, just there, there's just so many problems, but I think really the the robotics uh, is an area where everyone's sort of looking with a lot of a lot of uh, excitement and hope. But I think on the flip side of that, there's also a lot of um, uh, kind of acknowledgement that the technology is just not as far along as people want it to be at this point. Yeah, I think about 10 years ago, we used to sit and talk about how robotics would be required to continue to keep fruits and vegetables at their current costs. And, you know, we, we used to joke that, you know, some people say children are the future, but it really is robots. And uh, <laughs> but, but it's true. It's come to pass that I think we're even looking now at robotic ways to remove weeds that are right on the cusp, that they're good at using machine vision to identify the, the shape of leaf versus crop and then use manual oh. mechanisms to remove them. Yeah. And, and how fun is that? You know, to, to get away from herbicides and get away from uh, manual labor and weeds would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Well, and the, the other example, of course, is um, uh, some of the work that, that you all have done in Florida uh, trying to improve the flavor. Uh, of tomatoes, and, and also I, I, I believe that that technology is being used uh, to look at other crops now, so um, and you can explain the science better than I can, but um, the way it's been explained to me is that we've basically figured out, scientists have figured out what biomarkers um, influence flavor very strongly, and that, I guess, breakthrough can kind of be applied to other crops so I over time you know we've really focused on uh, on getting varieties of, of different specialty crops that are you know better they're shippable they might have a longer shelf life we've I think been pretty focused on um, kind of the more practical like getting the produce from point A to point B without it looking terrible and soggy and you know it's been more of like economic driven i think sure um that you know the joke that people tell about the about the tomatoes is like they bred tomatoes so they could fall off the truck and then be put back on the truck and they wouldn't split you know like they're just, sure. just durable right uh but i think everyone kind of acknowledges that some flavor has been lost perhaps a lot of flavor has been lost in that process in various crops so um 
looking at ways to kind of keep the durability and keep these characteristics that growers really want, but then also improve flavor. Um, a lot of a lot of people in behavioral uh, science and nutrition promotion would be really excited about improving flavor um, and and maybe helping uh, some of these crops get their uh, mojo back in terms of having more flavor. Yeah, that that um, work was actually out of uh, out of my department. Um, a guy named uh, Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah prof- brag brag about yeah, it. Yeah, sure will. No, pro- uh, Professor Harry Klee came up with the Garden Gem Tomato, and this is the whole idea was what we called consumer assisted selection. That for years, plant breeders started with what are the demands of the industry. We mm-hmm. want, um, and the industry said we have to have lots of it, high yields, big fruit disease resistant and shippable and plant breeders did exactly that they made something that was you know large high yielding resistant to disease and you could ship it across the country and it would maintain its post-harvest quality for quite a while the the breeders hit the target but then as the target started to shift and people were looking for more sensory quality we realized the fruits and vegetables we were getting weren't the best flavors and aromas and so what we've been working on now is having consumers define what are the best flavors and aromas in terms of the chemistries of the fruit, the genes that contribute to them, and then come up with ways to identify genetic markers that allow us to breed all of the same traits for positive flavors and uh, aromas all into one genetic background. And Harry's tomato was kind of the first item off the assembly line with this. There's strawberries coming too pretty soon. So, yeah, so lots of good stuff happening in in that realm. And um, I think that consumer sensory quality is really something that you'll see a lot more of in the future. So maybe that will help with some of the problem with actual consumption of specialty crops. Yeah, I mean, you wonder if, if, if the strawberry was even more delicious, if that might uh, get more people snacking on them or um i don't know i I, and i'm curious do you just to flip the interview here for a second what what do you think the barriers are to if there are any to adopting um that widely like just the idea that you might work you know look at flavor and like the more consumer perspective and some of these varieties that are widely used like is there are there barriers to that or, or or are growers and trade associations like yeah like let's go bananas let's do it i mean are, or are they resistant to the idea at all well it, it, it is it's an economic driver right you have to have at the end of the day it's all about how many red things you can put in the basket because to keep the cost down for the consumer and to have a profitable industry you have to have fruits and vegetables that are viable to grow which is why you don't see heirloom varieties in any great yeah. amounts because they're, they're too fragile they don't produce but by using the integrating the tools of genomics, where we could start to use, um, you know, a- analysis of sequence in the DNA and the variations that occur between things that taste good and things that don't taste good, you can start to assemble all those little variants in one place um, around a kind of collecting the genes in one place that lend to, lend to the positive flavors and removing the genes that. Uh, detract make from, it watery yeah or <laughs> or yeah, just uh, that really kind of detract from the experience you can have these funny little off flavors that re- that really uh, detract from the overall shape 
of the tomato or strawberry flavor. At the same time, you can have some things. There's some weird little musty notes that are described as by, by experts who are es- expert sniffers, panelists, uh, who will say that it's the smell of musty socks. But it's very important in the flavor of things like tomatoes in a very small amount. <laughs> so, uh, Well, I did not know that, but I'll, I'm going to remember that. Thank you. <laughs> well, this has been fun so far. So we're going to take a break here. Um, I'm, sp- I'm speaking with Helena Bademiller-Evich. Uh, she's the senior food editor and agriculture reporter for Politico. And uh, we'll be back in just a second. Today we offer a PSA. Not the PSA test, but as you'll see, that ain't a bad idea either. You see, your hostess enjoyed a lifetime with a happy colon. When you hit a certain age, physicians request preventative measures to ensure the fidelity of that chunk of the alimentary canal. Now, Kevin, have you ever had any symptoms or problems? Well, no. (laughs) And in fact, you know, I thought the test was a waste of time. I mean, I've always had a great diet, lots of exercise, no family history, and never any symptoms either. Um, My large intestine has worked for a half century in complete darkness and wasn't sure that putting a light up there was a good idea. Uh, I hated to lose the two days of work between the prep and the test, and it seemed like a huge hassle to have to have you, you know, drive me there and then drive me home. Well, you went anyway, so how was the prep? Well, drinking gallons of laxatives, it really was no big deal. Just couldn't wander far from home. Loads of laundry done. But the test itself was absolutely nothing. They knocked me out, I woke up, everything was fine. But why did you ask me to bring it up here? Because they found six polyps. And one of them has a rather chunky adenoma, and that means it's tissue that could have been problematic down the road. And see, certain types of colon cancers begin with these kinds of polyps, so they removed it. No big deal. I don't even notice it. And then I got to see the insides of my uh, body are a funny baloney color. So you're okay now? Absolutely. No effects at all. And in fact, now that I'm a few grams lighter, I think I run and bike a little faster. But the important news is that preventative measures are important and effective. And at the end of the day, it's no big deal. So there you have it, right from the horse's rectum. Talk to your healthcare advisor today and get a date with that camera on the end of a noodle. It beats suffering from the potentially deadly disease. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today's guest is Helena Bottom-Miller-Evich. She's the Senior Food and Agriculture Reporter at Politico. And we're following up on her article from uh, March 8th, which talks about the specialty crop gap, or it was actually called the vegetable technology gap, that Washington spends millions on crop research. Why doesn't more go towards the foods we're actually supposed to be eating? And um, we've been just discussing a little bit about that here today. And one of the things that I thought was really cool uh, in your article was the story about iceberg lettuce. It was another thing I didn't know. And could you touch on some of that for us? Yeah, I didn't know anything about iceberg lettuce either, other than, you know, it's like what everyone eats or used to eat. It's kind of like the first mainstream, I guess, lettuce. Um, 
and and I didn't know that I was going to be researching iceberg lettuce until I started asking around um, about packaged salads. So, so the reason we started looking at packaged salads was I was talking to my editors and, you know, we were trying to figure out ways to make specialty crop research approachable to, you know, readers who have nothing to do with agriculture, right? So, like, why should they care about this? What is the impact to their daily lives? And um, we kept coming back to spinach. Like, spinach is um, is ubiquitous now in grocery stores. You can, you can get it just about anywhere in a packaged form, you know, triple washed, ready to eat. You can throw it in straight into a salad bowl or straight into a smoothie. But that, you know, we didn't, we were talking about, we didn't always have that. So where did that come from? Like, where did the technology come from? And, you know, did some of this federal investment in agriculture research contribute to that? Kind of what's the backstory? And so as I tried to find the backstory of packaged spinach, um, it led me to, you know, I didn't realize it was going to lead me like, you know, almost a century uh, <laughs> back in time to really the, the the beginning story of iceberg lettuce. And, and the reason we had to go back to iceberg lettuce was back in um, the late 80s, it was actually iceberg lettuce that was first packaged and sold in, in the grocery aisle. And once I started looking at that, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember. You, you know, we I bet you remember those Fresh Express, packages that had the they had iceberg lettuce they had a little bit of shredded carrot Uh and a little bit of shredded um cabbage purple cabbage Mm -hmm. and they had that kind of italian mix looking to them uh and that indeed was the first packaged salad mass marketed and so i tracked down the guy who had worked on that um and it led me even further back down to the history of like how this all came to be. So this guy named Jim Lug, he's 83 years old, still sharp as a tack, by the way. Mm-hmm. I was so pleased to have been able to find him. He's like half retired, but still consulting for the, for the leafy greens industry. He was able to sort of connect me to this history. So Jim Lug had started working for this, um, company called uh, Bruce Church uh, back in let's see I think he started working there in the the, um, 60s and this company I guess had this innovative idea in the 1920s so 40 years before that to take lettuce from Salinas California and pack it into rail cars on ice and they could if they packed it on ice, they could get it all the way across the country kind of slowly and it would get unpacked and sold different places. Uh, and it would make it all the way to Maine on ice. And, and I guess name for iceberg lettuce, uh, came from the fact that children would greet the, uh, rail cars with ice, with the lettuce on top yelling, uh, you know, the ice or what did they say? I'm going to get this wrong. The icebergs (laughs) are coming. The icebergs are coming. That's what the kids would yell when these these rail cars would show up. So, that you know the the lore is, and I, you know it's hard to confirm now a century later. But that's where the name came from. And so, 
just this idea that Salinas, you know, a Salinas grower in the 1920s was trying to figure out how to get his product like across the country is in some ways like the same story that produce people face today. They're always trying to figure out, you know, how do I get my product to as many places as I can in good shape, you know, uh, and get that premium price for that fresh product. So it goes all the way back to the 1920s. So the same guy hires this guy named Jim Lug, who actually was a research scientist uh, with the Agricultural Research Service in um, uh, in California there in in the late 1950s. And he starts experimenting with different ways to extend the shelf life. And they came up with a lot of different things, working with some other scientists from, from a subsidiary of Whirlpool. And basically they started figuring out that you could you could manipulate the atmosphere that you stored lettuce in and extend the shelf life by a long shot. And I think the best non-sciencey way of describing this that, that I heard was you're basically putting the lettuce to sleep. You're slowing down the rate that it's breathing uh, in this package, and that just has greatly extended the shelf life um, for these products. And then once they started doing this, they figured out how to how to do this for many different greens. And what where this connects to federally funded ag researchers that is kind of random is back in the nineteen uh, the mid nineteen fifties, agricultural research service. Um, uh, researchers out in California had basically obsessively started cataloging everything we know about specialty crops and how to ship them and store them and, you know, just the ideal temperatures and 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 included in this, um, like, the rate at which different products breathe. Um, and I'm going to just butcher, like, what what it's actually called, but I think we call them the respiration rates. No, that's right. Um Okay, good. So, so this book, this massive book that you know people started calling like the Bible of of, of specialty crops, has a really boring name. It's a, like A H sixty six. Do you know what that is? Uh, I I've never I, heard of it. Yeah, I don't know oh. that one. <laughs> it's now it's like eight hundred pages, right? It's like this massive manual with all of this just information about different specialty crops, and it, it's kind of just an interesting wrinkle, I think, because, you know, people don't think about um, just how much work goes into this type of, you know, understanding, right? Just that you'd have basic things of, like, the ideal temperatures to ship cauliflower in, for example, okay? But there's actually so much um, work that went into, you know, looking at all the data, measuring things, figuring out, I mean, and this is really basic work that had been done, you know, now like 60, 70 years ago, and it still sort of has built the basis upon which lots of other innovation could happen. And I just found that interesting that, you know, this really, I'm going to call it very unsexy work of measuring like the breathing rates and ideal temperatures for produce could like build a basis of knowledge upon which the entire industry could then, you know, continue to build off of that. Um, and that that book is still being updated is, you know, again, it's just, it's just interesting. And, and everyone, I guess, in that um, 
field that works on like quality control or food safety is like very aware of that book. So again, it just gets to the role of like research and the behind the scenes, but like really crucial role that that plays in like advancing what we have in the grocery store. So uh, we didn't actually have packaged salads till really the late eighties. And um, I remember, you know, all of a sudden there were salad kits in the, you know, in the um, produce salad. You could get those Caesar salad kits, different, you know, kits. They really started expanding and innovating off of of this packaging. And the, the and this is the other thing I never knew, that those, um, and I cover food, right? So, like, I <laughs> focused on food policy for, like, seven years, and I had never considered the fact that the the packaging for my salad clamshells or, or those bags, I didn't realize that that plastic is breathable. Like this to me was just the most mm-hmm. uh, interesting, you know, revelation. No one had ever told me this. I don't know why I would have known or, I mean, I didn't know that produce needed to breathe. Like I just don't think in those terms. And so I've been telling everyone this and everyone thinks like either they're humoring me or they actually think it's interesting. But uh, we just don't think about the, you know, the types of innovation that have to happen for these things to work. And, um, you know, once you start looking into how much went into it, you're like, wow, like this is just, you know, it's a lot of investment. It's a lot of focus. It's a lot of um, problem solving, problem solving that really took a concerted effort. And when you look at the whole story, I mean, it's, it's decades long. Uh, it's a decade long path to get to this convenience. And I think greens are a great example of where convenience has led to increased consumption. I mean, we're consuming four times as much fresh spinach as we were four decades ago, largely because it is just simply easier to consume spinach. No, very good points. And what you're what you're really t- touching on is an area that's near and dear to my heart is uh, post-harvest physiology. That once you pick a piece of fruit or vegetable, it's still respiring it's still understanding its environment it's still interpreting the signals from around it and uh how it decays really depends on the genetics and um and how you treat it and we have so many experts who spend their entire careers that how do you uh what temperature do you immediately cool it and what's the fastest way to get the temperature down and what's the uh uh, you know, what are the in, things I think about light conditions that you can put them in as you display them or as you before you ship them? There's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff there because 50% of our food goes to waste, and a, yeah. lo- and a lot of it because of uh, post harvest decay. And, but um, yeah, again, again, I just I have to drive this home, and because you're in, you're in, in the wonderful world of science and everyone who, or very specifically specialty crop science. I'm just, I'm telling you, the rest of us have no idea how complicated that is. And it's, it is really fascinating when you, I mean, I just have a whole new wonky appreciation for fresh cut fruits and vegetables (laughs) now. Like I never have before. I mean, I tweeted a picture the other day from the airport, like eating this uh, sliced apples. Um, so it was sliced apples in a breathable little cup, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this packaging is an engineering feat. And I was thinking about like, I think it was USDA that first developed the um, the the solution that you can put on apples that 
it's basic. I think it's basically citric acid that slows down the browning or mm-hmm. combats right. the browning. You know, and just thinking about all the different, um, again, just effort and investment and research money and everything that had gone into that. It's like, oh well, now now I can actually like appreciate this in a way that I just didn't before. And again, I write about food, so I should know more than you know, most consumers, but it's just one of these areas that we don't talk about. Well, well, the other interesting thing about this for me as a scientist who, and, you know, my background is in molecular biology and genomics, and I always kind of keep a finger on the pulse of what the latest breakthroughs are in technologies that can help us improve plants and vegetables with, say, either genetic engineering or gene editing or, you know, other techniques that are yet to come. But isn't it kind of interesting that the crops people like the most are the ones that have had the least, um, basically zero, um, genetic engineering done to them? Is, is Do you think that that's just a function of because these are the warm and fuzzy crops around us that people don't want any uh, what appears to be invasive technology used? Well, I guess it's a question of what do you mean by like the most? Because they're not eating more of them. <laughs> so- <laughs> I, I mean, I think we do have a romantic attachment to fruits and vegetables, um, but whether or not that plays out in terms of consumption, I think, I think is another uh, question. I mean, I, I think the, the the biotech side of it's an interesting question, and I know my my colleagues and I sometimes kick around the the question of you know if if biotech you know, widely marketed biotech had started in specialty crops and had been focused more on consumer, um, had been focused more on engineering for things that consumers would recognize as a benefit, you know, would we have a different view of biotech? And I don't know that you can really answer that, but I think it's an interesting question because, you know, as you know, one of the challenges I think going across time with with all this technology and I use that broadly because you know it includes so many different types of of um, of crops and applications and it really is like a weird catch-all term that applies to too many things but I think across time so much of the engineering has focused on you know reducing labor increasing yields uh, reducing you know what you have to spray or when or the amount and and Consumers have been totally, they don't understand any of that. They don't, they're not connected to that. They don't see any benefit to their daily life. So it's a very abstract conversation to have about the benefits or the efficiencies that you gain from one technology or the other. I've wondered always, you know, if you'd started with, you know, I don't know, broccoli that had four times the vitamin C or whatever. I don't even know how much vitamin C is in broccoli or if it needs more. But, you know, if it had started out as that, like, oh, this is this is super healthy broccoli that has been, you know, engineered because, you know, it has more cancer fighting, whatever. I don't know. Like, would, would people have a different uh, perception of, of biotech? I don't know. But I think, I think today uh, the association with with GMOs is is the the um, the corn and the soy and like it's wrapped up into so much more than just the technology. It's about you know corporate control. It's about uh, industrialization. It's about monocrops. I mean, there's 
so many other things people are talking about now when they say GMO that they're not they're not really talking about like the actual technology, if that makes sense. At least that's sort of my perception. And I don't actually cover the GMO issue. My wonderful colleague Jenny Hopkinson uh, is amazing, and she we call her our like science guru. She she dives into all of these weedy debates about pesticide approvals and 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 you know all of the different um, debates around like biotech uh, regulatory frameworks and such. So I kind of watch it from a distance, but that I guess is my I think that's always been my question is if people would have a different view if consumers had kind of seen direct benefits from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, that, we're all selfish. Consumers are selfish. They want they want to know what's in it for them, right? I think that's the irony is that the first crop to be approved was actually a specialty crop. Was the flavor yeah. saver tomato. Yeah, and, and what happened to that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just didn't do it. It wasn't a, profitable, right? It wasn't profitable. It was uh, not in the and consumers greeted this with open arms. They were just disappointed yeah. with the product. And uh, it, you didn't use the best tomato in the first place to make it last longer. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, papaya flew under the radar because it was mostly a problem in Hawaii. But you're exactly right. You know, this is to the big field crops and all, it, it conflates with all of the other issues like you mentioned. Um, and, uh, and so that's really kind of tarnished that area. And, and be glad you're not covering that area because i am i really am i will freely admit that <laughs> oh you could see my you know my inbox is you know is uh is a if you like hate mail that's a great place to take a walk um well but, you know there it's good to remember there there are there food and ag are full of very very impassioned um, emotional debates and, and that actually is just one of them the others that you will get a lot of very angry mail about are raw milk and horse slaughter and I mean I know congressional offices who get more mail about horse slaughter than social security yeah. so just if, if you're ever being like oh man biotech <laughs> is the most polarized it, it might not even be the most polarized it, it gets there there are other you know uh there are other topics that 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 inspire just an enormous amount of, of passion and, and emotion and, and on all sides. Yeah, I've, so if that makes you feel better. I don't know, but oh, I've gotten it, lots of mail about Ron Milk. Uh, it, it does. Um, you know, the nice part is is I love that people have passion and I love that they're willing to um, express their thoughts, and I, I'm glad they. Um, send me their thoughts, even if they're not very excited about what I've said or what I've written. But at the same time, because at the same time, I make a connection there. And we sometimes end up walking away kind of in a kumbaya moment. Um, certainly, you know, the science is very real and very clear. And if I have the opportunity, I can explain that to somebody in ways they understand. And uh, But it, it takes being willing to do that and takes time. And so it's that's part of the problem is just we're not reaching to people the right way when we talk about technology. It's tough. And, and like I mentioned earlier, I think a huge part of it is like, what are you really talking about when you're talking about GMOs and biotech? And, you know, it, it, it really is, it's a catch-all for many, many different types of technology that really should each be um, evaluated on 
you know, in each case and in and how each is used and and what the implications are for each different type. And so I think, you know, having these very broad debates can oftentimes get people, you know, you can fall into into a lot of um, oversimplification on all sides. Oh, absolutely. You know, tribal thinking drives it. And uh, in, as scientists, you know, we're trained to really think outside those boxes, but it's very, it's very much human tendency to uh, seek information and accept information that reaffirms your beliefs. And yeah. so that's what we're up against. You know, it's just confirmation bias. And I understand that people have that. And it's actually, it's really good that people are just asking questions. I think is that's because I think I know the answers, and so it's just a question of connecting with them better. And I think I think you're right that the interest that consumers have, that everyone has in food and ag, is on the whole a really good thing. Like even when you know I hear the frustration sometimes from you know food and ag producers, consumers just don't understand what we do. You know they're they're fickle, and you know that's all true. But I think on the whole that people are interested in the long run makes what food and ag producers do um, more important and more, it really elevates like the, the profile of the entire debate. And so even when there are frustrations and passions run high, I think, I just think overall it is a good thing that people are interested in this stuff. And going back to this piece, I was joking openly to my colleagues, like, there's no way anyone's going to read a piece about specialty crop agricultural research. Like, that is not a sexy topic. And I have been blown away by the response to this piece. I've gotten emails from members of Congress, from, you know, researchers in the field, from just all corners and all different walks of life saying, wow, I, you know, I've never thought about it this way or, you know, I really underestimated that people would would care about this. I mean, I really, I was like, well, this was fun for me to research. And I was openly saying, well, you know, this is great, but only 15 people are going to read it. It's 3,000 words about, you know, about research uh, into a really kind of weedy area. And uh, I think that that speaks to the, the, the interest that people have and the, um, you know, they, they want to engage with these issues in a thoughtful way and you know i was proven wrong so i'm glad that you like the piece and that that people are more interested in uh specialty crop research than i thought and i still but i still think specialty crop uh, is a term that needs to be rebranded it's a horrible term <laughs> well but for me you know what i really like it is because i think about the the i, I go out to the field and i see the people picking the celery you know, this backbreaking labor that they're doing. I see the um, people in the science world who work on developing the new varieties and what they go through and developing new ones for years and years to come up with the next best one. And uh, what we do with uh, the people in production, either organic or conventional, and what they do to try to hone the fertilizer rates in water. And then you see what it goes into this from shipping through the logistics of the supply chain and the post-harvest care like we talked about. Then what happens at retail? And I want every piece of lettuce, I want every piece of spinach, I want every piece of everything to go into somebody's mouth. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want there to be any more food waste. And I think your article like this 
one of the cursory advantages is is it gets people a little bit closer to the story of their food, the story of the crops, and a sense of what it takes to get them from the farm to your plate. And I think that really helps too. Yeah, eat your spinach. Don't throw it away. That's a, <laughs> a good takeaway. So, so where do we find you on Twitter or uh, maybe other places on social media? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at H Bottemiller, so H-B-O-T-T-E-M-I-L-L-E-R. And I also have to plug Morning Agriculture. So if your listeners aren't uh, subscribed to that great free daily email, you can Google Morning Agriculture. It's the first thing that comes up. It's a great daily tip sheet on food and ag policy. Everyone from, you know, farmers to, to nutritionists read it. And, and we're very proud of that community and that, and that audience. Oh, I get that every day. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Helena, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.